So we're in episode 11 of our podcast. We crossed 10, which is huge. I never thought we were going to get here, but here we are. Um, and we have a another guest today from a industry that we... I don't think we've interviewed anybody from from games yet. No, this is going to be really exciting for me because... Well, both of us, because we're both really into games. Yeah. And yeah. we want to kind of share the story with people. Um, I reached out to Eric. It was kind of like a cold reach out um, on Twitter. And we met and we talked a lot about uh, gaming and like game development. So um, Eric has like a ton of uh, contrasting stories of like um, how different gaming is from like the standard tech industry. And I found it really fascinating. So we, you know, I'm really excited to talk to you today, Eric. Um, do you want to go ahead and just give us your introduction? Give us your high level overview. Yes, hi. Uh, nice to meet you guys. My name is Eric Martel. I'm currently Director of AI and Machine Learning at ADOS Montreal. Uh, prior to that, I worked uh, twice at Ubisoft, both in Quebec City and Montreal, where I had the chance to work on Far Cry and Assassin's Creed, maybe four or five of them. Um, prior to that, I was working in like uh, for a smaller game company that was from France, where we're doing point-and-click adventure games. Uh, in the early 2000s, those were a thing. Now it's uh, pretty much disappeared from the landscape. And uh, before that, I was working in an IT company called Nortel Networks, a company that crashed and burned, I believe, in 2001. They used to be a, a giant, and they, if I remember well, it's a question of insider trading, and uh, the stock just plummeted. <laughs> wow. So we actually have... The for the first time, I think in the history of the show, the two people from Canada outnumber people from the U.S. Because both Eric and I are in Canada, Courtney is not. This is awesome. Uh, now, so Eric, Eric, did you just move? I thought you just moved, Eric. I think. Yeah, technically, I work for a Canadian company, but I currently live in Rochester, Minnesota. There we go. Oh man. But I, well, I, I still. I don't have a green card, so I am still uh, using my Canadian passport. <laughs> I, I'm still on your team. I was really excited <laughs> about it. So, Eric, tell us more how you how you broke into the industry. I think that that's kind of the, the question that I want to start with. Like, what led you to games? Why games? Uh, that's a very good question. Um, I always played games since uh, I was a kid, so that's probably 1984 uh, on an old school PC Junior from IBM. Uh, those were the days. I, I never thought it could be like um, a career path for me, but uh, at some point I realized that there were game studios in Montreal, which was really close to where I was studying. So I just um, spent a bit more time researching them and I found Micreids, which was the first company that I was telling you about. And they they were, how could I say? They were expanding because they, they they had made a partnership with a, a Belgian comic book artist called Benoit Sacal, and they were trying to expand their uh, programming team to do some um, gameplay features for Siberia, which was the first game. And um, I just happened to know, like one of my high school friends was friends with a guy working there. So uh, he just put me in contact and a few weeks later I was working there. Which so uh, what, was, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. What time frame was this? Just to give us like a frame of reference. You know, I I would not have assumed that like Montreal would be like a huge or a burgeoning like gaming industry early on, right? Oh, so can, the, can you help us like understand that landscape a little bit? If I remember well, Ubisoft Montre Montreal started in uh, 1997, so it's uh, a while ago. Unfortunately, back then they were doing Playmobil games, so it it's has nothing to do with. Uh, uh what they're doing now um we kept joking around because as a game studio you often have uh promotional material lying on the on the floor and one of the character that was everywhere was like a playmobil little guy from the medieval ages and i think they were still were doing games like uh, alex at the farm and like games that you would not expect coming out of uh, ubisoft montreal but back in the day it was it was a thing and um so yeah, I, I joined the industry maybe in 2001. So uh, there were a few players in Montreal. It was mostly uh, Ubisoft. At that point, they must have been like 150 to 200 employees, 
which is nothing compared to now where there are probably 3,500 people. Um, Microids, they were a smaller company. They were basically working on the adventure game and um, a tennis game knockoff. Uh, they, they couldn't secure the name of the players because the licensing was too expensive. So instead they had the official name of the stadiums. So you, you could play like random guy versus random guy at Wimbledon. Uh, <laughs> That's how I like to play tennis too. Yeah. Random <laughs> but like you could always tell that this guy was uh, Andre Gassi or it was Pete Sampras, but he had like a, a different name. <laughs> and they changed the first letters of their names. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Switch them around. <laughs> So uh, yeah, I joined the industry maybe in 2001 after working for two years, I believe, on adventure games. I wanted something a bit more exciting. So I applied at Ubisoft Montreal, uh, ended up working on Far Cry Instincts, which was the console port of the first Far Cry. Uh, very little people know the game because uh, with the delays we had in production, we ended up shipping I believe something like three or four weeks before the release of the Xbox 360. So a lot of people didn't bother uh, buying games from the previous generation. And uh, it's unfortunate because it was a really cool game for when we made it. Uh, it had an in-game editor. You could create your own islands, play multiplayer with friends on those islands. It was pretty advanced for a first Xbox game. But uh, yeah, it So it's kind of the, the back just, end of that generation of xbox right like yeah. so the technology had kind of been perfected and figured out and so it was probably a really top tier production yeah 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 it was it, it's what i it's unfortunate because initially we had great ideas but we um i i i'll weigh my words we we were expecting a more optimized game from crytek which was the developer of the pc version our goal was to port it on consoles and the PC version was taking something like one gigabyte of RAM. Uh, on consoles, you have something like 32 megabytes. So uh, it was quite the challenge to make such a big game fit in so little memory. So at the end of the day, we had basically to rewrite the game design, rewrite the levels, so uh, we could actually fit in memory, which added delays to the release. And um, yeah, but thankfully Ubisoft basically ported the game to the next-gen consoles. So it became, I believe, Far Cry Predator. And there was another one, I think, for the, I was going to say Switch, but back then it was the Wii. Yeah. Oh, Wii. Wow. Yeah, so they, they made a Wii version of Far Cry. Uh, I'm not sure if it sold any copies, but yeah. Back in the day at the when I was working at Micreds, uh, we basically didn't do that much engineering, so we weren't touching much the code. Uh, we were using a visual scripting language where we would create logic blocks that were linked together. So whenever an event would happen, uh, it would trigger a flow of actions to be executed. But uh, as I joined Ubisoft, that's when I started working full-time in C++ and Lua and these uh, other more game-related languages. And so what did your like undergraduate degree look like before you got into the industry? Um, what were you focused on in school? Like you had this desire, right? You kind of mentioned that you'd always been around games and you thought it would be an interesting career to be in, right? And so like, how did that early like formative years look for you? That's a good question. I'm actually self-taught. I dropped out of college um, in the late 90s and that that's the fun thing about programming you can learn on your on your own with your own time uh, so I, I spent quite a lot of time reading about just C++ with the, the books of uh, Scott Myers and uh, Bjorn Straustrup I probably butchered his name but th those were the books I was reading uh, back in the day and I also spent a lot of time reading about artificial intelligence, which led me to focus a bit more on non-player character behaviors and decision-making in general. So unfortunately, I don't have a bachelor's degree, but uh, I did spend some time uh, learning how to build games uh, on my own. 
Do you feel like that uh, in any way, shape or form has affected uh, your career options, like the lack of degree? Because this is something that I feel like I, I talk to a lot of the folks about the fact that at the end of the day, the degree doesn't truly matter, right? Like, as long as you can learn, yeah. as long as you can adapt, and as long as you have that hunger for just doing and building things, that's all that matters. Yeah. Uh, personally, I, I'll approach it in two directions. I, I think the biggest hurdle is to pass the HR gatekeepers, like the recruiters that will only look at certain bullet points to see if your CV passes or not. Um, that's the biggest issue when you don't have a degree because some recruiters are not as technical as others. So they, they won't understand what you did in your projects and they'll just look for some key points like, oh, you, you have a master's degree from this university, therefore you have to be great. For me, it doesn't work that way. And um, I think, and it's, it's really anecdotal, but most of the programmers that I worked with were self-taught, had this hunger to learn new things. So they, they would be, I would say, maybe a bit more versatile than other programmers because they, they would always be open to learn a new stack, a new technology, a new library, and they didn't need to be, um, how could I say, to have this, this structure around them and how they would learn a new topic. So they could just pick up a book or open an SDK and start experimenting with it. So some of these programmers also have less structure in the way they write codes, with, which can be a, a downside. But um, most of them, in my experience, were uh, doers. They would get things done. So personally, I'm, I never look at the, the education section on a resume. I, don't care. I, I've been hiring people for the past, I'd say, 10 years. And to me, there's way too many people that stick to uh, which school you went to or what kind of degree you have. Some of the better programmers I hired had either no degree or a degree in physics or something that was outside of like the typical computer science uh, curriculum. And those people have been amazing programmers. Right, right. How did you overcome that hurdle of the, the, the filter, if you will, uh, how, yeah. how do you get the visibility and saying, look, I know my stuff, even though this formality is not, you know, I don't check that specific checkbox. Um, I would say my portfolio kind of helped, uh, having worked on the first Assassin's Creed kind of was a high point on my CV back in the day, but it's also part of the reason why I left Ubisoft Montreal initially. I know their HR changed quite a lot over the years, but when I when I left in 2007, I was still being told by HR like, oh, but before Ubisoft, you weren't doing real programming or it, it wasn't real game dev because it wasn't, uh, and you, you get paid less than some of your coworkers because you don't have a degree. So it was kind of frustrating when I went back to Ubisoft, things had changed, so it, it wasn't as much of an issue. But it was surprising to me that I was being told those kind of things. And in retrospect, I think it was simply HR people that didn't really know the field or understood what we were doing and uh, how um, basically recognition went with uh, what you were achieving and not what, what piece of paper you had. So after having worked on the first Assassin's Creed, I left Ubisoft and just naming that game, fortunately and unfortunately opened doors to me. Uh, I say unfortunately, because I see in the years I've been doing recruitment, I've seen people uh, show up with CVs that say, oh, I worked on Grand Theft Auto. Okay, sure, but what did you do on Grand Theft Auto? It's not because you your name is in the credit that you had um, a big engineering achievement in the game. I've seen people that, I don't know, could have worked on My Little Pony that worked on the low level optimization of how the assets are streamed from the disc that had a much bigger impact on that game, which didn't have a big impact on the game industry. Whereas somebody could have been working on um, having the credits scroll in the end screen of GTA. That's pretty much trivial still that person has <laughs> GTA in his CV. So yeah. that's 
that's something to uh, to keep in mind when when reviewing uh, resumes. So, how do you personally dig into that? With the you know, you're you're passing along people through interviews. Um, what's usually your kind of interview screener? How do you approach that? Uh, you mean I, when I interview people, or when yeah. I? Uh, Typically speaking, uh, we're blessed in 2020 that most people have a GitHub account. So it's always easier to just start looking at the code that the person did and ask them uh, why they did those kind of decisions. Uh, oftentimes, I see GitHub accounts that everything is in the first commit. So they don't use GitHub like it should be used. They just work locally until the thing is done and then they push it. So it's always a discussion starter to ask them why they did it that way. And then you start digging in like random pieces of code. Then sometimes you realize that 90% of the project was what their teacher gave them and they just did little bits and pieces. So it, it allows you to dig a bit more into what sort of coding experience they have. Uh, obviously now I'm talking more about juniors that are just joining the industry. Uh, people that are more senior uh, typically are under NDA, so they cannot disclose what they actually did on the games or how they did it. But still, um, I, I typically use open-ended questions like, how would you approach this kind of topic or that kind of problem, just to see their uh, way of thinking. And typically speaking, I hire more for um, chemistry than for technical skills, I wanna, I wanna hire someone that I won't mind spending six hours with explaining how to do something, more than someone who uh, would do it in two hours and then nobody on the team wants to work with because he's like the quote-unquote genius asshole that no one wants to be with. So, <laughs> I and and, you know, and I think speaking, that like. It, one of the things in our conversations we've had before you've talked a lot about is that the gaming industry by its very nature is extremely stressful anyways. Yes. So in comparison to, you know, traditional product design and development, which usually it's on a, you know, we can push back the schedule or we can adjust our horizon line because we have a luxury, right? In, in traditional yeah. tech. In games, you really don't. It's like there's a launch date, there's a release date that's announced and they hold you to it. Yeah. So, like, I guess, you know, you definitely want to have chemistry with your teammates because there might be times that you're in a crunch mode, right? Yep. And I would love for you to share that, like, aspect of it. Like, it's just such a stark contrast to, I think, like, what a lot of engineers, like me and Dan, you know, we work on products, web products, um, quite different mm -hmm. from the life cycle of a game. Yeah. I, I don't know much other fields, so I might be um, oversimplifying other fields. But I feel that a lot of typical software, you can come up with a plan and have a good simulation on paper on what the flow will be and how uh, these data structures will interact with one another in order to create the function that you're looking for. For most games, the function that you're looking for is fun. And there's unfortunately no way to approximate fun or know if the pieces will actually be fun once they're connected to one another. So that's why there's unfortunately a lot of crunch in uh, in game dev, simply because uh, even if you planned five years to develop your games, you never know at which point the pieces will work together in order to make something that's like super fun for players. Sometimes it's within the first six months, sometimes it's uh, during the last six months, and sometimes you just don't get it. And that's why some games, even though they have big engineering teams, will still come out and have like a, a five on 10 review score. It's, it's also like you were mentioning, um, because we're bound to release dates, uh, some game companies don't have the luxury to postpone the release of the game and to, uh, to, to make the adjustments to make something fun. And also sometimes it's just too expensive. For example, if you recorded all of your dialogues, all of your um, motion capture, it's possible that once everything's integrated, you realize that eh, it's not really working, but that's it. That's what you have to, uh, to work with. Uh, when I mentioned that not everybody has the luxury to postpone a release is 
whenever you're dealing with a console release, PC and uh, Steam might be a bit different, but uh, on console, whenever you put out a game, it needs to be vetted by the console manufacturer. So uh, it's really similar to what the older guys uh, might have seen with the, the good old Nintendo cartridges, cartridges that had the Nintendo seal of approval. Uh, this meant that Nintendo played the game and that they were um, okay with the quality of whatever was on the cartridge. Uh, that's probably, in my opinion, what saved the gaming industry in the early 80s, because on previous uh, consoles like Atari and whatever, anybody could release a game and sometimes the game could crash within five or ten minutes and there was no quality control. Uh, Nintendo, when they added the, the seal of approval, it meant that their own QA played the game and made sure that it was stable enough to be uh, released to the public. Because remember, back in the day, there was no patches, there was no DLC. So uh, the, console, uh, the, the cartridge you received was the final version of the game and you, you could do no adjustments. Um, so yeah, since you need to have that kind of QA, typically speaking, uh, you need to be in queue for, for example, Sony or Microsoft to allocate some uh, quality control people to play your game. So you can't simply say, oh, well, I'll postpone it three weeks and see you guys in three weeks later. It doesn't work that way because uh, Microsoft has a schedule, Sony has a schedule. So typically speaking, it's agreements ahead of time as to when you'll be uh, getting your game tested. And it's possible that your game gets rejected because, for example, you didn't figure out that uh, if the game is played for seven hours in a row and you lose the network connection at that point, uh, the game crashes. Well, that's a failure uh, of what we call the technical console requirements. So uh, Sony or Microsoft is free to tell us, well, your game is not coming out in that state. You need to patch it. Uh, most studios will deal with the company and be like, all right, well, they will do a day zero patch. So uh, people with a connected console, whenever they buy the game, they'll be able to patch this bug anyway. So this way uh, it allows the game developer to save time because um, printing the, 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 well, the Blu-rays and the, the box and the, the, the little pamphlet that comes with it takes some time. So uh, by doing D0 patches, it allows us to uh, still uh, start the process of printing everything while we're still fixing a, a few bugs. I feel like I rambled. Uh, hopefully I answered your question. This, this is fascinating. It's an entirely different process compared to all the other software. Now, something that stood out to me is you called out the fact that you have to plan way in advance for some of the things, for example, you know, the game development, because obviously, you know, you don't ship a game that is as massive as, say, Assassin's Creed or Far Cry or Grand Theft Auto in, um, you know, a year or two years. It usually takes five, six years. And we, you know, I, I'm a big fan of Grand Theft Auto and I cannot wait for the sixth one. But even seeing, mm -hmm. you know, the fact that, when was it, the San Andreas came out in like 2004 and then the next one was, I want to say like 2000, what, like 10, 11, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, it, it takes forever to build something that massive. How do you yep. adjust to things like, you know, obviously technology changes, right? Like if your game takes six years to develop, in those six years, a lot of things change. You know, your dev tools change, the toolkits change, the console, maybe there's a next gen console coming out. How do you, you adapt? You have a good game, a good game. Yeah, like, how do you adapt to those kind of because it's it's in software we are always talking about you know being agile we, you ship fast you know you ship 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 in games you can't really do that um i always joked with the expression that what we're doing is sprinter falls so it's waterfall planning but made in sprints so we're we're trying to be agile while uh still planning ahead what's going to happen um I, I don't want to name names of companies, but I think there's a reason why only Rockstar has games as big as GTA. They have a pretty large bank account that allows them to take the time to uh, do whatever they want. And these big developers like Electronic Arts, Ubisoft, um, 
a rock star, they probably all have a red phone linked directly with Sony and Microsoft. So as soon as the next console is getting planned, they get a phone call and they know exactly what's the plan, what what sort of uh, GPU we're talking about, what sort what sort of uh, memory capacity. So these companies are able to plan long ahead to be ordered to hit the next generation of consoles. Whenever you're working uh, seriously with, with console manufacturers, even years before a console is released, you typically get a, a mock console. So it's PCs that are specced up to be as close as possible to what the console will be. And then you iteratively uh, receive hardware that's closer and closer to what, what will be in the hand of the gamers. Um, these devices are also super useful because they typically have slightly more memory than what the end user will have because uh, typically speaking, when you're developing on PC, if you use too much RAM, the OS starts swapping, so copying part of the memory on the hard drive and then do this magic that it doesn't show to the end user other than is PC starting to be super slow. Uh, on consoles, there's no way of doing that. So typically speaking, the second you allocate, uh, allocate one byte over the uh, fixed amount of uh, RAM, the console just crashes. So for that reason, during development, uh, you typically have like hundreds of megabytes, if not the double of the RAM capacity in the console. And uh, basically it allows the developer to have like a big red thing in the screen saying, well, you would have crashed you can continue working on it, but you would have crashed if it was on retail. Uh, that's what we call a dev kit. So uh, developers have what we call a dev kit, which is uh, pretty expensive. I, I guess I cannot mention numbers because I'm under NDAs, but it's you could buy a small car with, uh, with one of those consoles. I, I think it's simply to uh, make sure that only serious developers uh, can afford them and have them uh, because at the end of the day, the hardware is still slightly similar to what's in a retail console. And for people who are not aware, whenever you buy uh, a PlayStation or an Xbox, whenever it comes out, um, the hardware companies always sell it at a, at a loss. The hardware in it is more expensive than the cost you're paying for simply because they're hoping that people will buy games and offset the price of uh, of the hardware with that. I remember that being a big deal with like the launch of the PS3. You know, I think they got, Sony got basically battered when they initially launched the PS3, like crossing their fingers, hoping they would recoup their costs because it was such an expensive yeah. endeavor. And if I'm not mistaken, that might be the reason why the Dreamcast died uh, because people realized they could copy games and simply run a, a copied CD in the Dreamcast. So um, Sega was selling consoles at a loss and then not selling software. So uh, it didn't take too long for the, the console to die. And Sega went uh, into big uh, financial trouble back in, in those days. Wow. So in this case, from what you described, when you get I, to me, the, the first thing that stood out is like, okay, well, if I'm a dev and I get one of those dev kits before the next-gen console comes out, I will make a lot of assumptions about the tech stack and the ability and say, oh, I have you know four gigs of RAM. And when the console comes out, it's actually, oh, it's actually now two, right? Uh, how do you not over-index, I guess, on the, on the perf specs of what you have early on? Because you can make certain design decisions and design compromises based on the hardware that you have, only to realize later mm -hmm. that, oh, wait a second, it's completely different. Uh, fortunately, we never had those uh, those bad surprises. Uh, it, it It's not something that I've seen in the past, other than um, an anecdote that, that I have from the first Assassin's Creed. When we finally received the, the final version of the game, we might have been the first game to fully utilize all the cores on the first uh, on the Xbox 360. And we didn't realize that we were really pushing the console to its limit. The game was running at 30 frames per second, so we were uh, we're, we're in the in the the green, so everything's fine. But then one of our technical directors brought the copy home, and that's probably like five 
five days before we start duplicating the disks, the guy brings the disk home and starts playing. Within a few seconds, the sound keeps cutting. And he's like, what, what's going on? And then the next day, he, uh, since you're from Canada, you might know that store. He went to Future Shop, which, is, uh, which was <laughs> bought by Best Buy. And he went to the, the audio video section of Future Shop with a copy of Assassin's Creed. And he was like, well, can I try our game on as much hardware as possible? And the, the, the guys working there were like super excited because they, they were happy to see the game before release. And we realized, I think it was something like 50% of the amplifiers would stop the audio and restart a few seconds later. So uh, fortunately, Ubisoft had a really good relationship with Microsoft and they, they helped us right away identify the problem. Uh, we were using a bit too much the core where the uh, audio processing was being done. And back in the day, if I remember well, the XDK was sending the wrong signal to the amplifiers. So some of them would like start looking for a new signal instead of just waiting the next few milliseconds to uh, receive more audio. So we almost had like a, a pretty massive bug for the game simply because all of our amplifiers at the studio were the same. We, we had bought like a few and were using them for testing and those ones were fine, except for uh, when the technical director brought it home. So uh, we, we re-dodged the bullet there. And ever since, I think most studios and even first parties like Microsoft and Sony start diversifying what kind of hardware they use around the console from TVs to uh, amplifiers, just to make sure that uh, the game would run on a wide spectrum of uh, of consoles. So thankfully, we never had issues with uh, with specs that we were aiming for. But uh, we we did I did run into issues where a game that I hadn't foreseen uh, kind was kind of released before our game. Uh, when I was working on T4, it's uh, like a game where you're trying to steal things in the Victorian era. And the, the goal is to not be detected and to play as stealthy as possible. And I would say maybe a year before our release, that was a five-year development plan. And maybe a year before we released, a game called Dishonored came out. And Dishonored is amazing. And it completely overshadowed what we were doing. And in the end, um, I still think that Thief should have been dishonored, but they were better than us and they came out before us. So um, I, I think we deserve, quote unquote, the flack that we got for, for Thief. Uh, it could have been a better game. And uh, yeah, I wish we had done uh, Dishonored. So when you're looking at developing for console, right, you're a studio and you're looking at, I'm developing console, you know, a lot of the time you see like a release for the PC version of the game alongside or it might be a little bit delayed yeah. you know you've just described developing on a piece of hardware given to you maybe by microsoft or given to you by sony that's like a, a faux machine right so it's, it's a pc machine yeah. help me understand a little bit like you know obviously if you're developing this thing for cross systems the same you'd want to do the same thing for diversifying your hardware right because pcs are so like there's so many different variables with a pc right yeah. Your end user on a PC could be running like the craziest rig ever with everything maxed out or somebody with like super low spec. Mm -hmm. And uh, like, yeah, if you're, I guess, what's the strategy if you're a studio that's like, I want to have my game on all platforms, not just, yeah. you know, like look at Overwatch, right? I think that's a great game to talk about because it's like everywhere. It's on every yeah. platform. Um, my experience is mostly with the console studios. So typically speaking, um, most games are developed on a Windows machine. So each game engine supports to some extent running on PC because people are testing what they're doing on the PC. That being said, most games are meant to be used with controllers. So uh, the developer itself works on the controls using, uh, for example, an Xbox controller or a PlayStation controller. And basically you make sure that um, playability is feasible on the, the dev spec of the hardware, but 
any any serious developer will always run it on console to make sure that uh, the, the frames per second is really uh, what you're hoping for and that the experience is really what you're hoping for. So I would say the PC version is often like the, the little brother that trails behind. It's rarely the focus of uh, a developer to be like, let's nail the PC version and then we'll port it on console. Typically speaking, it's easier to port it on PC because you can establish what's your minimal spec and then support any specs higher than that. So, so develop for that lowest common denominator and then yeah. go from there. You exactly. know, and I imagine, and, you know, we're talking a generation ago, but like, you know, I, I imagine like developing for Nintendo systems has to be particularly interesting because they always seem to have some sort of quirky difference in the way that their, you know, system is interacted with or presented yeah. to the user, right? You look at the Wii U that had like this separate, Basically, you know, it was like the prototype of the Switch with like an actual hand, hard console and you didn't see as much support from third party, I don't feel like, for that mm -hmm. console. And I wonder if that like also was part of the reason, like, you know, it's it was low spec anyways, comparison, mm -hmm. in comparison to the 360 and the PS, PS4. But um, yeah, I think I think Nintendo kind of sometimes is always in that like different area, right? They're just they're just yeah. different enough that it might make it a little hard to develop as a third party. I, I will preface this by saying this is my personal opinion, not my employer's opinion, but I feel like um, Nintendo has so many strong first-party games that it makes, it makes it really hard as a third-party developer to get into their ecosystem without getting completely destroyed by a Zelda or a Mario game or a Metroid. It's really hard to um, compete with the games they have and the marketing budget that they have for their own games and since you were mentioning they, they always have like a little hardware twist that most other consoles don't have so it becomes more expensive to make a version of your game for a, a console that might not be your core audience where you'll most likely get overshadowed by first party games so that's why a lot of developers just pulled out of developing for Nintendo because it was a uh, money sink. Yeah. Would you have the same thing for other platforms as well? You know, because if I think like Microsoft has Halo, right? But I guess on yeah. Xbox, you have a much more diverse set of games where it's like not everybody's yeah. playing Halo. Yeah. And Halo is iconic but you can still have some other shooters that compete in the same genre. Like Call of Duty is doing really, really good. Uh, and it's rare that you'll have someone say, oh, I don't want to play this game because it's not Halo. Whereas action platforming games uh, get kind of compared to Mario. And right. it's really right. hard to to have like a Banjo-Kazooie or like some other title that's in the same genre, like a cartoonish um, action platformer without getting the direct comparison to Mario or, you know, you're a fantastic medieval game, therefore you're competing against Zelda. Uh, obviously, there's still some uh, genres that Nintendo don't redo themselves, but I was about to say, uh, I guess there's like racing, but then you have Mario Kart. I was going to say fighting, but then you have a Super Smash. So it's really hard to compete in the Nintendo ecosystem against Nintendo. Uh, that being said, I'm sure that Square Enix has a lot of great titles uh, that are running on on uh, Nintendo consoles, but I, I, I just uh, left the Nintendo ecosystem after the GameCube, personally, as a I consumer. I think you also had mentioned that um, there's this whole, you know, behind the scenes for developer ecosystem, developer support and developer ecosystem, making it easy yeah. to develop for the platforms. And in this generation, you've already seen a shift in the way that Xbox, you know, Microsoft and Sony have geared, right? Mm -hmm. Like they've geared, they both kind of tried to step up their game when it comes to serving developers, the people who are going to actually be building for their systems. Can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, well, again, personally, I never worked with Nintendo, but uh, I know that Sony and Microsoft are basically the two companies that we're working most with. Uh, I, I was 
slightly disappointed by Microsoft when the Xbox One came out because for the Xbox 360, the software stack that was integrated in Windows Explorer, integrated in Visual Studio, like everything was working out of the box and it was a great experience. In our opinion, it was because Microsoft was a software company, whereas Sony was a hardware company. So it would make sense that um, Sony's integration was a bit more clunky, whereas the one from Microsoft would be butter smooth. But when the PS4 and Xbox One came out, there was a shift there. So uh, Sony hired some new developers to make sure that the experience of developing with their console was top notch. And honestly, I'm not sure what happened with Xbox, but a lot of tools required a lot of manual interactions and it was just not, not a great experience. I, I cannot talk about next uh, consoles, but uh, there's, um, it, it's definitely, if the tools are right, it's definitely easier to, um, to work with the consoles because most of our games imply a lot of uh, tooling around them. So you have the content creators that will create the levels, create the characters, the animations, all of that. But typically speaking, all of those end up on a repository, be it on Perforce or GitHub, or, well, GitLabs or whatever. And then you have build machines that grab all the data that will cook the data. So uh, optimize the data structures, uh, make sure that everything's packed in like a big file that's easy to, to read at runtime. And all of these processes um, typically at the end will talk to a game console to, for example, uh, deploy a build to a console and make sure that in the morning, all the game testers have the latest and freshest version of the build. Uh, obviously, when you have a, a good and clean ecosystem, it makes it easier to do all of those steps. Uh, but if everything needs to be manual and then you have your testers come in the morning, click on a batch file that's start copying uh, like, uh, I don't know, 30 gigabyte yeah. file on their console. It's not as uh, straightforward. What does the documentation, so Din and I are both from like the developer documentation world. So we have, we like heavily invested in it, right? I come from Stack Overflow. Din has worked on Microsoft Docs for a long time. So yeah. I'm intrigued to know, like, you know, there's kind of this like, like I said, behind the scenes um, developer ecosystem that happens for gaming, who does like all that developer documentation, right? Like for Sony, like you're developing for Sony. Sony obviously has to have people, you know, they have they have a team doing that. Like, what does that look like? Yeah. Or is it like a is it a, kind of a just a community of, you know, developers working at different studios sharing information? Like, how much gets shared, I guess, between studios? Is it a closely guarded secret, or do you? Is it like a you know a burgeoning community where you all try to work together? Uh, that's that's a good question. I would preface it by saying, in my opinion, there's not enough sharing in the world of game dev and a lot of studios still, okay, m maybe 20 to 25 years ago, being a master of the hardware, being like the most clever programmer, made you have a game that would stand out. That's why John Carmack is so well known. Uh, when Quake came out, it was incredible what Quake was compared to other games at that time. I think a lot of game development execs are still in that mindset that any piece of code is like the secret sauce and sets your studio apart from uh, other studios. In my opinion, in the past maybe 10 to 15 years, it became more um, a creative advantage, like do you have the right developers to make a cool concept come out and, and be fun? It's less about the algorithms and how the code is structured, more uh, what's what's the storyline, what's, uh, what's the experience for a player. Yeah, and I think so, that this is interesting because this starts to get into like AI, right? And this is your specialty, which is like AI is that mix of like creativity and making sure that it's an experience that would be really rich to the user and make sense yeah. and feel real versus, like I said, if you have a great AI team, mm -hmm. you're going to have a great game. And I think... Yes and no. Um, how could I say? A, a lot of difficulty with AI. F for the common people right now, AI is, um, well, they don't know it, but it's typically deep learning or, for example, the, the 
the, the server code on Facebook that identify faces of your friends whenever you're posting a picture or a clever recommendation algorithm on YouTube. That's what AI is for the common people. What we typically do in game dev, I jokingly call it artificial stupidity. The goal is to make the characters credible, but dumb enough that the player's always better than them. So you're trying to create a so it doesn't feel cheap, the... like the game is trying to beat you all the time and just... <laughs> yeah, well, for example, most shooters, there's specific code that whenever an NPC will shoot at you, they miss the first bullet. And we often try to have the first bullet pass in front of the camera so that you see the trail, you hear the bullet, and you're like, oh, I, I, I'm so good that I managed to avoid the, the first bullet. And then there's like mathematic formula to make sure that like you don't die from a bullet spray. It, it's, it's making it, um, it's figuring out ways to make the player the star of the show. Did you guys ever watch that um, that cartoon reboot? Yeah. That's what it reminds me of, right? The game yeah. drops down and then they have to be like, well, we have to lose the game for the player. Like we can't, yeah. we can't, we could beat them, but we're not going to. We have to let them win. Although I was gonna say, if you play Gears of War five on hard, like whatever the hardest mode is, whatever they did with their AI, that thing shoots you in like the first second when you get out of yeah. behind the counter. It's, it, I, I had to like so many frustrating nights of like, why can't they get past this? Yeah, but that's. That's a challenge you mentioned on hard. Whenever you're developing a game and you have multiple difficulty settings, it implies testing the game multiple times for each of those settings. Uh, that's why a lot of studios, unfortunately, will simply resort to having multipliers. So the harder it is, the more hit points or the more damage the enemies do. But um, yeah, it's, it's quite a challenge. Uh, on Thief, we had uh, for a challenge, uh, if I remember well, difficulties like uh, you could not be seen or... So it was twists on the game mode, which I found more interesting than just making the NPCs detect you uh, at like 75% of the timer. They're like, oh, you're there. I'll come see. So, yeah. But yeah, a lot of studios don't want to share code. Uh, they barely want to share ideas. So it's always interesting when uh, developers are allowed to participate to what we call the GDC, the Game Developers Conference, where we get to share our um, ideas and algorithms. To be honest, most of the talks there talk about ideas and how to achieve them and not specific implementations of here's how I actually did the code that's running but it, it's still very helpful for, for the developers. Uh, so yeah, like you were asking initially, uh, both Microsoft and Sony have technical writers that make sure that the documentation is uh, up to date. Um, technically speaking, a lot of studios will have an engine code. So uh, if you've heard about uh, the Unreal Engine, Unity, or uh, most studios have their own engine, if it's not one of those, that they will use internally to create the game code on top of that basically core of functionality. And the game engine will be the one uh, responsible to be uh, basically compiled for each of the platform. And that's where the interface with like the specific SDKs, uh, for example, for Microsoft or Sony. So you can abstract, for example, reading and writing from the disk at the engine level. So a gameplay feature could ask for a sound file that's on the disk and you don't need to worry about, uh, well, how's the sound file fetched, et cetera. So it's only like very sp specialized programmers that will read the doc from Microsoft and be like, oh, here's how I use the API to ask for an asynchronous read on a file on disk. I think the interesting part here too is, and this is something that I've encountered with machine learning specifically and any kind of tutorials, and I think that's, probably I would hypothesize that makes sharing a little harder is because it requires you to have that context. It requires you to have the knowledge behind the scenes, right? It's very hard to uh, teach somebody, you know, deep learning in a week long course of saying, oh, here's the five step tutorial on how you can be an expert in deep learning or how you can use the algorithm for detecting, you know, um, collisions. I, I feel mm -hmm. like there, there's a lot of complexity and 
I, I wonder if there is an extent to which people are just kind of saying, you know what, it's this is too hard to explain. It it works. I wrote it. it it's there, and <laughs> whoever whoever needs it can reuse it. And yeah, I agree with you in the challenge. I I gave a few presentations at the AI summit at the GDC, and my challenge was, let's say there's four or five hundred people in the room, how do I write a presentation that will resonate with most of them? When you have game designers, you have level designers that are interested in AI, so they they want to learn more, but they're definitely not like this programmer that wants to see a meta programming with templates and C++ and all of that. So it's really hard producing content for such a niche field because game dev is big, but it's not that big if you compare it to writing uh, J2EE uh, applications where like you would have millions of programmers that would be interested in what you're doing. Uh, game dev is still hyper specialized. It's, yeah. that, it's like a really niche group and then it's also like it seems very secretive. Yeah. yeah right? a, so you can't, you also don't want to like reveal, you know, your employer secrets. Yeah. And, I mean, I mean the, the, even the complexity of explaining those secrets, say if you wanted to, it's still like oftentimes looking at resources online for both like game dev and machine learning. It's always, you know, that, um, the joke about how do you learn to draw an owl, uh, owl? And there's this, you know, start with like two circles and then draw the rest of the owl. Like, yeah. it's like, okay, this is not exactly teaching me how to do this. I don't get it. Like, you show me, like, the first starting steps, but then I'm missing this whole rich context of the rest of the project. Yeah, definitely. And to uh, to talk about, like, giving out some uh, some uh, studio secrets, most of the, the presentations I did or the, the articles I've written had to be signed off by top execs. My first article... I had to have the contract signed by Yves Guillemot, the CEO of Ubisoft. So uh, I, I felt I still was a nobody back then. I, I had just started making games and I wanted to write an article. And they they made me, like the lawyers, made me ask Yves Guillemot to sign my piece of paper. And I was like, why? Can't you guys do it? Anyway, it was... Uh, that, Fun that, that's, that's fantastic because I, I can imagine you know the scrutiny when you're like it's just a blog post for my own blog it's like no the ceo has to approve it's like oh god now i have to yeah. refactor the entire thing yeah and there's a lot of pr too that needs to validate the the message we did a gdc talk about some of the tech that we did in assassin's creed unity and uh, it was maybe five months after the release of ac unity and Unfortunately, you guys might be aware, Unity was not the most well-received games uh, of the Assassin's Creed franchise, mostly because of uh, of graphic artifacts, which I, I will get back to. With It's funny, but not funny at the same time. We uh, we wanted to make, uh, to explain part of the tech that we developed for uh, encounters that you have whenever you're walking the city, like someone getting mugged or whatever. And we obviously had some debug display to draw lines of uh, who can see what and which areas on the ground are valid to uh, to spawn these encounters. And PR initially didn't want us to publish any of this at GDC because there was uh, debug draws added on top. So it didn't look polished enough to uh, show what Unity could be. But we were like, it's a developers conference. They, they all use that. It's not for the end user. We're just conveying information, trying to teach people. At the end, they allowed us to do it, but it was uh, it was quite a challenge. And uh, Courtney, you were mentioning before the wide range of hardware that's available for PC gamers. Uh, if I remember well, the not the thing that killed AC Unity, but that really uh, damaged the, the image the game had was this good old picture of Arno, the main character, that was just two eyes floating with, I think, the tongue and no face. Uh, <laughs> that screenshot comes from PC Gamer. And if I remember well, the, the, the thing is, if you were running with um, old NVIDIA drivers, when you start the game, the game would be like, wait, your drivers are too old. Click here to install the new drivers. But you can always like 
kill that process and be like, no, I still want to play the game. So it was someone playing on PC with outdated drivers. When they reached that point in the game, for whatever reason, the memory layout wasn't good and the face would not draw. <laughs> and it's really hard for a developer to shield yourself against those kind of situations. So um, we were working on Assassin's Creed Syndicate, which was the, the follow-up. Well, not really follow-up, but the, the next title after. And we started uh, having, if I remember well, it was on a filter in uh, Jira, our bug tracking software, where it was like a, a potential YouTube or something. So any bug that could end up leaked on YouTube as like a graphic issue was already uh, was moved uh, on the top of the stack as like a super high priority because we wanted to avoid those kind of situations. But at the end of the day, you cannot control what a PC gamer does with this machine. I shouldn't I complain about. I should not complain about having to debug browser bugs now. <laughs> I, I love the concept of a YouTube-worthy bug. I want to put this in yeah. every single dev team that I'm working on now because, like, <laughs> is this YouTube-worthy? Are people yeah. gonna film this and say, "What the hell did you do?" <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, Eric, I have a question for you to kind of wrap up our conversation and kind of I I, I want to learn you know Courtney called out earlier the fact that in the game industry oftentimes there's crunch mode there's very intense periods of work yeah. um, how do you balance that in your life and make sure that you're not burning out right that you're you're constantly energized about the things that you're doing you're you have that passion for games it's clearly visible and you know from our conversation today but how do you keep it sustainable um, I would say most developers are now much more mature and take crunch time more seriously. Uh, my worst experiences must have been, let's say, between 2005 and 2007, 2008. That's when um, I would say the average person in the industry was quite young. A lot of them were single, no kids. Now in 2020, a lot of people have aged. They have a significant other oftentimes kids, so they, they don't want to be at the studio until midnight. They want to spend some quality time with uh, with their spouse and kids. And I don't know if you remember, I think it's in 2006, a letter called EA Spouse. Uh, it made the rounds in the media. It was basically uh, the wife of an electronic arts developer explaining online how many hours her husband was putting in and how little it was paid for it, and it it made waves in the industry. So a lot of companies started to take the matter more seriously. And um, back in the day, a lot of people were working overtime for uh, zero, uh, uh, how could I say? We weren't paid for the overtime, but some studios were still accounting how many hours you put in, like on a side spreadsheet. So it wasn't in the accounting, but it was still kept somewhere. So at the end of the day, if the game was very profitable, then there was like a bonus system for how much you put in, you would get uh, some money out of it. Uh, most studios realized that this was really not compatible with a family lifestyle. So I would say what I've seen the past few years both at Ubisoft Quebec and Ubisoft uh, at Eidos Montreal, is that whenever you want to do overtime, you need to have the approval of your lead. So your lead needs to be like, okay, you want to work more, I'll let you do it, but you will get like one day vacation for every day that you put in. And um, it's not like never ending. Back in the day when I was working on the first Assassin's Creed, I was probably working on average 80 to 100 hour weeks, which was not sustainable. But back in the day, I, I was young and dumb, so I, I was fine with it. Now, my my lead would tell me, no, you're, you're not doing this. You, you won't be able to sustain, and I need you until the end of the production. So let's do, like, let's evaluate what's needed for the next milestone. What can we cut? And then, okay, I'll agree for you to uh, spend two weeks with 20 hours of overtime that you can spread over the weekend and night days. And at the end of the milestone, I'll give you a week off. So it's much more sustainable. It's 
bursts of overtime, but it's definitely not the type of crunch that uh, we used to see back in the day. Um, obviously, I'm sure there's still some studios that crunch like crazy, um, especially indie studios where they need to, uh, to, to, to basically publish in order to get some payments or a way to, uh, to feed their family. But most game developers that are publishers at the same time have enough money in the bank to be more responsible with the way they, they tackle um, overtime. So I know all the studios in Montreal, like all the big ones that I know people working at, uh, Ubisoft, ADOS, EA, Bioware, Warner, I think they're all like super responsible with overtime and they don't overtax their employees. Because at the end of the day, um, I've rarely been re-optimal really past 40 hours. Uh, and oftentimes you see at the end of the project, the quality of code just going down because people uh, don't think straight, they're tired, they, they, they. They're just not performing and, optimally. Exactly. And it's been proven like from uh, early experiments that most people past 40 hours, they're not as, uh, as uh, perform performant. Yeah. Well, this has been. Fascinating. I, I personally learned a lot from you, Eric. Thank you so much for sitting down with Courtney and I and discussing all this. Uh, I think just like, you know, with a lot of interesting conversation, I think we need to have a repeat because there are so many more <laughs> questions that we have in the future for you. So hopefully we did not scare you off. Uh, <laughs> Anytime. I'll be happy but, to answer your questions. Yeah, this is fantastic. Thank you. Where can and, people find you at, Eric, if they want to just kind of see what you're sharing and what you're doing in the world? Um, that's a very good question. Right now, I'm since I'm doing R&D at ADOS Montreal, there's not much of what we do that's getting published, but I'm working on that to have uh, some sort of blog platform on the ADOS website where we can show our white papers because my, my team right now is comprised of mostly people doing deep learning and really, really interesting things that, we, uh, that we're starting to publish. But Anybody that wants to reach out personally, they're probably better off going on LinkedIn. That's where I'm most active. I lurk a lot on Twitter, but I never post uh, unless uh, it, well, yeah, it's really rare that I'll post on uh, on Twitter. And uh, I got rid of Facebook. I'm really happy of that. I don't need that. And uh, yeah, LinkedIn what's your favorite, is probably... What's your favorite game right now? What have you been playing? Um, I'm not playing anymore because I, I, I got burnt out of playing games, but I do watch a lot. Um, I would say on Twitch, I still watch a lot of uh, League of Legends. I'm also a fan of Rocket League. Um, I, I think a lot of it comes from the fact that I grew up wanting to do esports, like mid 90s, late 90s. I was playing a lot of StarCraft and I quickly realized that my my hopes were higher than my skill set would allow me to get to. So uh, that's why I get so frustrated playing Rocket League. Like, I wish I was better. I wish I could do aerial hits and whatnot. And I always fail. So I ended up just watching talented people. It's fun to people. watch people that are pros do it, though. Yeah, no exactly. Matter how, yeah, no matter how much I play Rocket League, I still suck. <laughs> <laughs> it, it can still be fun, like, without doing the crazy stuff. But it's... When you compare yourself, that's when you get disappointed. And unfortunately, with Twitch, it's so easy to see. Um, I think <laughs> I mentioned it better. To, yeah, I, I think I mentioned it to Courtney last time. Uh, I got Dark Souls 3 and I tried playing that game for a few hours. And then I opened a YouTube video and I think the guy within 15 minutes was further than I was after, I don't know, five, six hours. So I just stopped <laughs> playing the game. I'm getting too old to, to do roles and yeah. it's so enjoyable to watch. I mean, people do all kinds <laughs> of crazy stuff and you see, you know, the, the Mario speed runs and people doing all that yeah. crazy stuff where it's like totally fascinating. We're like, yeah, I, I know I would never be capable of doing that, but this is, and, this is awesome to see somebody putting in the time and the effort and the kind of the talent and actually putting that together. And the most impressive, I know we're getting, uh, out of the out of time, but the most impressive is seeing speed runs that use bugs in the game code. Yes. For example, oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I've games seen done someone quick. games done quick is amazing. Yeah. I've seen someone play God of War where they went into a fountain to trigger the swimming animation and then they just 
flew out of the fountain and they were going in between worlds just swimming and it was quite impressive it's really hard for us to uh, to I, test everything i always wonder like the games done quick guys when they're doing those for charity i'm like how in the hell did somebody figure out to roll backwards three times into a wall then jump twice and then you get clipped in and you end up at the very end of mario right, right? like none of those none of those are just kind of like oh you know what i stumbled across this like the green tube and i figured out that it's transparent no somebody's like if you go to this second while you're crouching also pressing the b button and the left trigger then like how many iterations do you have to go through until you figure that out like unless you're reverse engineering that code i don't get it and even then a lot of it has to do with timing so reverse engineering the code would still be really really hard because you, you need to reverse engineer how the memory layout will look at at this very specific moment yeah it's Super impressive. Yeah, and like, 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 how do you, you, how do you test or find like a clipping through a level? At you know, I don't, I don't know. We we do know. have some QA technicians that spend their days walking into walls and trying to see if they can clip through. It's um, a commendable job. I would not do it. It must be really, really hard. But <laughs> we're uh, also looking into using uh, technologies like uh, reinforcement learning to to have agents learn how to uh, do those clipping tests and run through the level and try to clip through everything so that's more done it's done more procedurally and can be done overnight yeah see there's a lot of topics we still need to cover so we need like yes. another hour so whenever um, you want we have to have you in another episode of the podcast sounds good well, thank eric, you so much eric yeah thank you for being here this, this thank you great. guys it was super fun <laughs>